This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. As we heard in the headlines, six COVID-19 deaths so far with 435 positive cases and a cluster in a healthcare setting. Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell this morning renewed calls for people to avoid close contact with each other as counties step up enforcement in different ways. The thing we emphasize repeatedly is we need to flatten the curve. We need to flatten the curve. That means people need to follow the stay-at-home, work-at-home orders entered by the governor and myself. They need to continue to be followed. Now is not the time to, to be lax. And they need to focus on the critical, critical things here that we keep emphasizing um, about quarantine, testing, quarantine, and social distancing. Testing, quarantine, and social distancing. And part of what I want to emphasize at today's press conference, we need to do rapid testing. We need to become more aggressive in our testing. You know, I've mentioned this before at our press conferences that we're at war with an enemy that we can't see. And the scouts that we send out are basically tests. You go out and do tests of people, you find out where the virus is, and you find out where the virus isn't. And while sometimes you may get a negative test because a person is asymptomatic, but could become symptomatic, but the more tests we do, the more information we get. And with that information, we can do contact tracing. So if you come back positive, we can find out, you know, who you work for, where you've been, and then follow up and do more rapid testing. And this allows us to get information to help fight the virus and flatten that curve even more. And of course, when we find some new tests test positive, we isolate them. They go into quarantine for 14 days. And that's something that the city and county of Honolulu is going to be pushing in a more active way and, and getting this done because this testing, one, gives us information for fighting the virus now, but I also believe once we have a model of testing in place, it is something we can use to determine whether it's safe to come out again. Because how do we know at the end of April or if this has to go on into May, at what point do we say we can start to open up now, where is it going to be safe to open up and what kind of things could be opened up first? Is it retail? Is it clothing stores where you allow people in but only in a limited number? And do you, for, for example, test for antibodies for the people who work in the retail store so we know they're not positive or they don't have the virus and they, the guys going in will be protected? So how do you open it... up restaurants next, for example? Um, but requiring great social distancing. So maybe 50% of the t chairs and tables are removed and people can come in, but the people who work at the restaurant are tested to make sure they are not positive so we don't endanger those who are coming in. But I think this kind of testing allows for a gradual and continuing opening up. Now that can't occur yet, but testing is a key component of knowing where the virus is. And I believe testing is a key component of how we open up. So how does the city plan to help in that regard? So we have a, a group of people, a, a small committee, dedicated to trying to find the, the best type of testing uh, kits. We're trying to find out um, whether or how many we can get. Uh, we've had some positive leads. Um, there's nothing to announce yet, but we have some very positive leads of getting a sufficient number of, of test kits um, to do this rapid testing. Uh, the next step is finding out who can actually do the testing because, as you know, the city and county of Honolulu does not have a Department of Health. We do have an EMS, EMT, paramedics, paramedics team that perhaps could assist, but we're going to be looking for the appropriate folks who can test because if you're tested positive, you need a doctor who then advises the patient um, on how to address their, their, their symptoms and get better. And so we're putting this together. Um, and I hope we'll have something to announce by early next week along those lines. So will the city also assist in locations? I mean, you know, you have opened up the YPO soccer field and I believe Kakaako Park. Yep. And we also were out in the west side. The city provided a site out on the west side yesterday or the day before. I can't remember what day um, this week. So we are providing sites to have the testing going on. Um, but we'd like to get it in more places around our island and particularly in communities of need who don't have the advantage that some of us have where you can you have a primary care physician or you can afford to go to an urgent care facility it would be in places um kalihi pololo the west side you know the the, the 
the North Shore, uh, Waimanala, where perhaps people could more easily get tested in the communities in which they reside. Part of the testing, by the way, Catherine, is we are going to be setting up a testing site at Whitefield Peninsula Soccer Complex this Saturday, like we did last Saturday, from 8 to noon, and you can announce that. So from 8 to noon, this coming Saturday, three-day weekend, the YPF Peninsula Soccer Complex will be open for free testing, and we encourage people to come and get tested. It's important to do so. Mayor, the, this committee that you're working on, is that uh, uh, an adjunct to you know the state's efforts? This is a group of city and county employees who I've asked to follow up all leads because as you can imagine as a mayor i'm sure all the other mayors i'm sure the governor is getting calls by from people i've gotten them from people in south korea uh, people around our country people from europe who are saying we have test kits and they can test rapidly and they're affordable of course there are issues like are they fda approved are they how accurate are they are they 85 percent accurate which we find unacceptable some have been 85 percent accurate or are they 99 percent accurate which is more acceptable because you want to make sure that those are tested or assured that the test they get is as accurate as possible. Um, so we have a group of people here in the city who are following all leads to make a determination as to what tests are the safest, most accurate, are the FDA approved, and then how are the tests administered, and with the positives coming back, who is the physician who is going to give the medical advice to that patient who's been tested positive. And Mayor, as you continue to underscore the need to prevent the spread of this uh, disease, I know you've taken some heat because you've tried to uh, restart the construction out there at Sherwood Forest. So what can you tell us about that situation and the and the pause that's on that project right now? Well, on no, Sherwood Forest, uh, Waimanawa Bay Beach Park, um, over the past probably six months, I spent at five meetings, each meeting from three to five hours, sitting down with leaders of Avar Sherwoods um, in a, a talk. And, you know, it's a little bit ho'oponopono, but not 100% ho'oponopono. It's a little bit mediation, but not 100% mediation. Justice uh, Jim Duffy, our former Supreme Court justice, you know, an outstanding lawyer and an outstanding justice of our Supreme Court, now retired, um, helped um, moderate the discussion. It was highly productive. Um, it resulted in a solution that was much better than the one that was proposed initially. Um, it, 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 there were requirements of, made of me to show good faith, and I did everything that was requested. We drafted two resolutions that I submitted to the council. They have not been heard. One was to assure the community that no other phases of this project would be built in that the first phase, which is not even the first phase, it's just a, a redesigned uh, field with no playground grassy field with native Hawaiian trees planted, ulu, milo, um, ko, hao, and others um, being planted around the field in a reconfigured parking lot for people who, who, are, who have physical disabilities that's more ADA compliant. Um, that was part of the request. I supported that. I put in a reso stating that, resolution stating that, and also saying that we're not going to follow forward with any of the master plan that it needs to be reconfigured with the input of the community today, not the community of 10 or 12 years ago. That was one resolution. The other one was renaming Waimanalo Bay Beach Park to Unana Niho um, and making it, turning it into a cultural historic park, kind of like Lapakahi State Park over on the Kohala coastline. It's the only other cultural and historic park I know of in the state of Hawaii, other than, you know, um, City of Refuge, Onao Now, which is a federal park. But it would be the only city and county park that would be a cultural and historic park. That resolution was submitted too. I was hoping both would have been heard because we believed in talking together that would provide a, provide a platform for members of the community, both in the Waimanalo area, but in the island of Oahu, to come forward and submit testimony pro and con and have a discussion in an orderly, controlled manner, um, and then see what comes out of it. Unfortunately. Those resos were not heard or scheduled, but I did what I was requested to do. And then the agreement was we would start construction again. And the decision was made probably around the holiday period, after the holidays, and in January, we asked the contractor to gear up. And it took the contractor between now and last week to get ready to go. 
And so we asked the contractor to begin. Uh, we were fully aware that, you know, the stay-at-home, work-at-home order was in place. But I felt somewhat assured from the discussions with leaders of the community, and I also met with those who still want the master plan to be completed, that pretty much everyone wanted a field. And so we proceeded based on that, hoping that there would not be um, large protests. And it was, we saw on that Monday, there were not a lot of people who showed up. There were maybe 12 to 15, I've been told, including members of the press. We had two folks who were cited uh, for not practicing good social distancing. One was a person who'd been camping out there for a long time. Um, and people were very responsible and practiced, practiced good social distancing. Things changed, though, dramatically when a, a three-inch uh, human uh, EV was found, the EV was, was located. And at that point, uh, we followed all the protocols that we were required to follow. And um, we stopped uh, work around the project. We put a 100-foot buffer. We sat down and, and met with um, the Oahu Burial Council and Shipley. Uh, we asked for them on what to do, and actions have been taken regarding that, that, that EV. Um, and there was a ceremony last night um, as the sun was setting to address the EV. And we have put a pause on the project where we continue to consult with the appropriate entities. I know the concern is that you don't want a large gathering of demonstrators to gather there during this time. That's correct. It is a concern, and I stated that in my press release, saying that we're putting a pause to construction, was we did not want a large gathering to take place. Okay, and then we'll just work through the Shipti process? We're going to follow every protocol. We're going to honor the the stories of this land and the EV that are found there, and we're not going to do anything that is disrespectful. We want to make sure that we follow every single protocol, and until we do that, we put a pause to the project. And by the way, uh, Catherine, I do want to thank leaders of the Waimanalo community for their leadership. They showed true leadership in terms of trying to manage the situation. I know it was difficult for them, and I think through their, their demonstration of leadership, we had a situation that could have gotten much worse not occurring, and I do appreciate that and, and you know, want to thank them for showing that leadership. That was part of a conversation we had with Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell, who spoke with us earlier this morning about the pause on the Waimanalo Bay District Park project that drew demonstrators earlier this week. He also talked about how the city is planning to help with more widespread COVID testing. The city plans a news conference later today. And we now look to a more global view of the effects of the coronavirus. The World Health Organization issues a warning and death spike for two major ethnicities in New York. Here's the BBC with how COVID-19 is affecting lives on the other side of the world. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Thursday, the 9th of April. I'm Peter Goffin. The World Health Organization warns governments not to relax their lockdown measures. Figures from New York City show greater proportions of black and Hispanic people are dying from the virus. And Brazil prepares for an outbreak in its indigenous communities. China has relaxed its lockdown in the city of Wuhan. And already the likes of Austria, Denmark and Norway have outlined plans to do the same. But the World Health Organization has urged global leaders not to be lulled into a false sense of security. Here's the WHO's Europe director, Hans Kluge. Knowledge of COVID-19 and some positive signs from some countries do not yet represent victory. They offer a rare chance for us to tighten our grip on the virus. Now is not the time to relax measures. At one point, Donald Trump had said he wanted the U.S. out of lockdown by Easter, a goal that was criticized for being dangerously unrealistic. And while the president is no longer talking about specific dates, he has said he wants to begin talks with health experts about lifting restrictions. It would be nice to uh, be able to open with a big bang and open up our country, or certainly most of our country, and I think we're going to do that soon. You look at what's happening. I would say we're ahead of schedule. Now, you hate to say it too loudly because all of a sudden things don't happen. Uh, But uh, I, I think we will be sooner rather than later. Meanwhile, statistics from New York City have shown that a disproportionately high number of black and Hispanic residents are dying from coronavirus. Big cities across the U.S., like Chicago and New Orleans, have reported similar findings. And this is just the latest example of racial inequality in American health, as our North America editor, John Sopel, explains. 
At this intensive care unit in New York City, nearly every patient is black. Stefan Flores is an emergency room doctor in the city. The people that we're seeing most still are those African-Americans, are those Latinos, those black and brown people who come from obviously low socioeconomic backgrounds. Incidence of heart disease, high blood pressure, obesity and diabetes is much higher in the African-American community, the disorders that leave you most susceptible. The mayor of New York says it's a source of shame. The disparities that have plagued this city, this nation, are once again causing people, innocent people, to lose their lives. In Brazil, health authorities have warned the virus could wreak havoc on the country's indigenous communities and on Brazilians living in shantytowns, or favelas. Siobhan Leahy has the details. At least seven indigenous Brazilians have tested positive across three Amazon states. One of them is a 15-year-old boy from the Yanomami community. He's being treated in intensive care in the city of Boa Vista. Brazil's health minister does say that he plans to build a field hospital for indigenous communities. But meanwhile, in Rio de Janeiro, four crowded favelas, including the country's largest, Racinha, have recorded their first deaths. And there are concerns that people aren't adhering to quarantine measures Local media say many streets are still really busy. The United Nations has called on the transitional government of South Sudan to step up its efforts to contain the spread of coronavirus. The country has only a handful of confirmed cases so far, but years of war have left its health system in ruins. One and a half million South Sudanese live in close quarters in camps for the displaced, and many already suffer from disease and malnutrition. Now, the Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti has said the European Union could collapse if it fails to help countries that, like Italy, have been badly hit by the pandemic. Our Rome correspondent Mark Lowen has more. The Prime Minister called the pandemic the biggest post-war test the European Union has faced. Italy is pushing for a coordinated economic response from the bloc by allowing countries to share debt, something opposed by more frugal members. The clash has caused exasperation in Italy and a rise in anti-European sentiment, which Giuseppe Conte said could lead to the breakdown of the EU. Russia has been under lockdown for more than a week. But one of the country's best-loved ballet troops has posted a video that proves the show must go on. Here's our Moscow correspondent, Steve Rosenberg. The stars of the Mikhailovsky Theatre in St. Petersburg have found a creative way to keep performing. To the music from Don Quixote, a Russian ballerina prances around her kitchen, tapping cutlery on the work surfaces as she goes. Next up, in this domestic dancing video, another ballerina glides through her kitchen, fanning herself gracefully, not with a fan, but with a plate. This is the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kauai author Bill Fernandez, whose writings weave Hawaiian history into mystery novels and memoirs. Learn more at kawaiibillfernandez.com. We at HPR hope you'll join us in thanking our underwriters for their continued support of our mission to educate, inform, connect, and entertain our community before, during, and after this crisis. This critical backing from the business community helps us bring you the information you need in these uncertain times. A genuine mahalo to the more than 200 underwriters who make this station stronger.
Well, cities across the country have been bracing for the peak of the virus and the highest death rates. So what's the latest prediction for Hawaii? Well, HPR reporter Ashley Mizuo joins us to talk about that. Good morning, Ash. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yes, so, you know, I recall seeing a graph at one point saying that they were thinking maybe April 19th, and then I heard, I think, Lieutenant uh, Governor Josh Green talk about the last week of April. So what have you been able to find out in your research? Right. So there's a couple of models out there um, that have been going around nationally that have looked at um, the resources that each state has. Um, But the main one is out of the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Um, Basically, that one broke it down into two categories of state by state on when we'll hit peak medical resources and then um, how many deaths will be occurring during the coronavirus outbreak. Um, And so that study also takes into account um, the day that states implemented social distancing um, here in Hawaii. That was on March 26th. And it also uses data um, on the hospitalization capacity and the utilization of hospitals to kind of show um, pretty much the need versus the supply and where each state lies. Right. So, um, so it's looking at things like our beds and ventilators? Right. Beds and ventilators. Those are the two beds. Well, regular beds, um, regular hospital beds, ventilators, and ICU um, beds as well. Um, so the very so when they first came out with this, um, they had originally said that uh, Hawaii's peak resource use date would be on May 1st or the beginning of May, um, which would mean that that's the day that we would be using the highest number of beds, um, ICU beds and regular beds and also ventilators. And that original study said that we would need about 1,100 or so beds, um, and we had 560, 956 available uh, with a shortage of 150 about. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a shortage of ICU beds that they said we would need at least 45 more. Um, for, we would need at least 100 more than we already had, and that we would need 134 ventilators, which wouldn't be a problem for us because we have um, far more ventilators than that. We have about 500 or so um, here. So that was the original um, study that came out. And then that got revised, though, earlier um, in April, around April 5th. And they are now saying that our peak is going to happen on April 12th. So that's in about three days. And in that time, the statistics have come down quite a bit. So we'd only need 390 beds. Um, and we have 956 available, so there would actually be no bed shortage um, and only a small shortage of ICU beds um, with no ventilator shortage either. So um, the new projected numbers seem to be a lot lower than the original one with Hawaii looking a lot better. And so then as far as the date, that's the latest is the 12th then? Right. So... With the caveat, though, so the study, the University of Washington study says that the peak date is supposed to be on April 12th, which is going to be this weekend, supposedly. Um, But epidemiologists have talked to locally as well as the data specialists. Um, They're not 100 percent convinced that um, we're going to see the April 12th peak date, um, mostly because... uh, when it comes to the way that they recalibrated their, um, when it comes to the way they recalibrated their study, uh, it looks it's better for the states um, that are not Hawaii, the ones that are more progressed along in their COVID-19 outbreak. And because Hawaii is still more in the earlier stages, they think that the new data might not be necessarily as good. Um, Nick Redding, he's the director of the Hawaii Data Collaborative. Um, they do a lot of work with Hawaii Community Foundation on compiling a lot of data and analyzing it. And um, he says that the University of Washington data is the best that the state has right now, but maybe not so much with the recent update. Basically, because our, our hospitalization rate and death rate is still so low, they had to make some assumptions in their model, which, you know, they apply their model across all 50 states. It's not like they're going state by state and creating a separate model for each state. They're creating a generalized model. With this update, what we feel when we evaluate it is it actually made the model less valid for Hawaii. It might be more valid for New York and other states, but it's actually probably less valid for us now. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, if we're looking at the numbers now, uh, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green gives out 
semi-daily um, the bed capacity we have here. Um, and right now, things are looking a lot lower than usual because uh, on average, like the, according to the 2018 data that we have, the Hawaii hospitals generally run an occupancy rate of about 65%. Um, but with elective surgeries down, we're seeing hospital bed usage at only 47% capacity, ICU beds at 28% capacity, and ventilators at 12% capacity. Um, so the numbers are looking a lot lighter on the hospital side. So who else have you talked to? Um, so we have some um, epidemiologists we've talked to. One of them is um, Thomas Lee, uh, but we've mostly just um, been talking about what exactly is the data that we need um, to understand where the peak is going to happen in Hawaii. Because right now we see a lot of national data and national studies, but we don't really have necessarily one that's specifically for Hawaii. Um, and that's where the uh, Hawaii Data Collaborative is coming in. They're trying to come up with their own um, version of it. And what they're saying is what they need to see is day-to-day -day hospital capacity. Um, and unfortunately, the only way they can get a better um, understanding of how many hospitalizations we're going to have is to have more people in the hospital because the more data that you have, the better the predictions will be. Um, but most importantly, above all, everyone is saying that we need more widespread testing. Um, and then Dr. Thomas Lee, as I mentioned before, he's a professor of public health at the University of Hawaii and an epidemiologist. And he says that we are, might be missing a chunk of community spread cases in more vulnerable demographics. We're different than some other states. Unfortunately, we do have a homeless situation that we're working hard to solve and figure out. But knowing that that is a potential hotspot, the other hotspots are marginalized uh, communities where English is the second language, and they may not be getting the information, the health education, the preventative tips that everybody else is getting. And if we could see what the status of COVID is in terms of potential spread in these marginalized and underserved communities, I think that would improve some of the modeling all right, uh, good story there, Ashley. We uh, appreciate you um, uh, taking a look at this, uh, and we'll just have to wait to see what happens. We've been talking to HPR reporter Ashley Mazua, who has been tracking the daily COVID-19 news conferences. It's now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. We're learning more about the snapshot on public schools and the likelihood of whether they will reopen this school year. Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so uh, what uh, what can you tell us about this? There are lots of families out there that are very interested. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm afraid this is probably not good news for a lot of parents who uh, have their kids home with them at least until the end of this month. That's the current stay from the Department of Education, schools closed. But it looks like they could be closed even longer. This is from our education reporter, Suvon Lee. The story's up on the site today. She got a hold of a memo from the Department of Education this week, and it says it needs to see, and when I say it, the Department of Education, a lengthy period when there's no COVID-19 cases before teachers and kids can go back to school. So was this memo sent to families, or is it an internal memo? It's an internal memo, and, of course, it's posted on our website. You can link to it and read to it. And what it is saying by a period with no COVID-19, they're talking about a four-week period. That's essentially, that is, in fact, double the 14-day the period uh, when you see no new cases. But as you know, as we all know, Hawaii is seeing dozens of cases reported every single day. I think the latest count is up to 425 or so. So do the math here. The, the academic year, uh, the current school year, ends on May 28th. So you can see that if we have to go a four-week period without a case, boy, that's really pushing it really close to try and go back to school before the end of this current academic year. Yeah, that's not much wiggle room at all. No, it's not. And then, of course, you look to the fall. That's not till August 4th. And who knows what things are going to be like until then. It's a little curious. The memo does link to the CDC, which uh, talks about medication strategies for COVID-19 and, and school closures. But the CDC says, CDC says there's no available data really on restart times 
for schools. And Suvan also checked with the Department of Health. It turns out the Department of Education did not consult the Department of Health on this advice in terms of when they could restart school. So that's a, a, a boggling statistic. We're not quite sure why that is the deal. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. And, and by the way, speaking of math, you know, I think the count, if I have it right, it's nearly 180,000 kids in public schools throughout the state, about 14,000 educators. That's a heck of a lot of people uh, being put on hold for potentially an indefinite period of time. There is discussion of summer school. There is discussion of e-school, electronic school somehow. There's talk about setting up remote learning centers and even modifying graduation requirements even further to see if they can make the best of a terrible time. Now, uh, they must be talking with the Hawaii State Teachers Association and keeping them in the loop on all this, I hope. You know, that was not mentioned in Suvan's article. I would imagine the HSTA is paying very close attention to this. Uh, there are contractual obligations as well. By the way, speaking of uh, school graduations, if you recall, the Board of Education, I think it was just last week, they waived the standards for high school seniors uh, in terms of their graduation. So uh, helping them, given that their their school year is almost out totally, done with their K-12 experience. Wow. So uh, really, uh, we're still on pins and needles here. Right. Uh, we did talk to the DOE spokesperson who said that the DOE is going to continue to adjust things uh, as the scientific community comes forth with new information about the virus. So I expect there will be there will be new information coming shortly. All right. Okay. Thanks so much, Chad. Interesting story. That was uh, our um, Chad Blair. He's the uh, uh, political and opinions editor at Honolulu Silver Beat. Uh, he's bringing us today's reality check. To read Suvon Lee's full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, the next online info session for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR is April 17th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Are you more of an order muppet? Hello, this is Kermit the Frog, and I am here today. They really like rules, they manage their impulses, and they really like a lot of order and structure. Or a chaos muppet. Hello! Think Cookie Monster. Monster here. They tend to not really notice rules. They are more risk-taking and impulsive. No cooker! How rules shape us as individuals and as societies. This week on Hidden Brain. This evening at 7, following says you. Support for The Conversation comes from PBS Hawaii. Insights at PBS Hawaii features a live weekly discussion on the effects of COVID-19 in Hawaii, Thursdays, April 16th, 23rd, and 30th, pbshawaii.org. Well, there's been lots of talk about developing a vaccine for COVID-19, and for so many, it can't come soon enough. HPR reporter Kuube Hiraishi joins us this morning to talk, to talk more about Hawaii, what Hawaii researchers are doing to help in this effort. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Hawaii has joined uh, that global fight to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. Uh, UH Manoa scientist and vaccine expert Axel Lair, uh, we sat down with him to kind of go through what he is developing. So he's working with uh, New Jersey based biopharmaceutical company uh, to leverage a technology platform that he had uh, he and his colleagues over at uh, University of Hawaii's medical school that they developed uh, for the Ebola virus initially so they're using that same technology to develop uh, a vaccine for COVID-19 now how it works uh, is everyone's seen that visualization of the coronavirus where there's those spikes on the outside of that mm -hmm. of that ball, what he's pretty much doing is taking those spikes, take, taking a spike and using that to develop uh, an antigen or a substance that could then go into everyone's body and tell the immune system, this is how you react to, you know, when you see the threat from coronavirus. So uh, he says it's, it's different from the approach 
uh, that's being taken by the folks that are Moderna, who is uh, developing a vaccine that's already, we've heard is already in human trials, uh, entered human trials last month in Washington. So uh, that's an RNA-based approach, and that's different from his, and he sort of explains uh, how that's different. So the difference is that we produce the protein in our case and then we put the protein into the patient to tell the immune system what the enemy is, whereas the RNA-based vaccine tells uh, the body how to make the protein. And um, there are other platforms also that are being used, but I think the main ones are based on either these genetic approaches, which you will hear a lot more about in the next few weeks, I'm sure. There will be other clinical trials that will start, uh, and then the more conventional approaches like ours. So according to the World Health Organization, we've got about 50 vaccines currently being developed uh, for COVID-19, for coronavirus. And so, but the, the thing, and everyone's asking, is these things take time. Right. Lara says that uh, a normal vaccine development timeline is about 15 years. Uh, But his according to his best uh, estimate on his vaccine development process is uh, they'll be able to enter human trials in about six to nine months. And that's kind of keeping in line with what health experts have been saying this 12 to 18 month timeline for developing a vaccine. Uh, That seems to be uh, he seems to be on track with that timeline. Uh, as well. But there have been instances, he says, where in the past where an epidemic hits, all these vaccine developers jump in, try to develop something, and then all of a sudden the virus sort of goes underground, right? And he, Lair, uh, explains that one possible cause of that is this effect known as herd immunity, which we've been hearing a lot about. Um, and so when we think about what vaccine developers are trying to do, it's sort of helping that same herd immunity uh, concept. What we need right now for COVID-19 is herd immunity. Uh, we need a large percentage of the population to be vaccinated or, of course, have been exposed to the virus, which is, of course, happening naturally right now. People are talking about 60%. So once about 60% of the population have experienced the virus, then it most likely will disappear because now the, the transmission chains will be broken. But of course, we're a long ways away from that. Right. His best guess is uh, about a year or so, but probably a longer. And as we know, this virus is quite infectious. But uh, one development that we've seen earlier this week are these uh, antibody tests, right, where you go and you figure out how many, uh, whether or not someone has been uh, infected or had contracted the virus, but maybe did not show any symptoms. So that part of the equation is really uh, going to have an effect on this herd immunity goal so, of ours. So you may have been exposed to the virus, maybe either contracted a, a very what mild case of it or, exactly. or just not showing no any sim- symptoms. Exactly. And so those individuals would be, uh, I guess, contributing in some way to herd immunity, right? But we don't know. And one of the big unknowns uh, comes from our lag in testing uh, here uh, in the United States. And Lair is uh, pushing, you know, he wants to understand the magnitude of the viruses spread in our community so that uh, will help them once they get to the point of uh, sending this vaccine out. One thing that is very important right now is that we don't understand really the full picture of the virus biology. We don't understand epidemiology because one of the things that, that is our current limitation is that we don't have enough testing ongoing. Mm. We don't know how far the virus has really spread in the population. Once we know how many people actually got contracted the virus but never got sick, those are very, very important numbers uh, and very important in terms of the strategies then on how to deploy vaccine. Right. So the next step, at least for him, he says he's in sort of the uh, when you when you bake a cake pattern, he is uh, in the process. He's got the recipe and now he's figuring out the right proportions of each element of the vaccine to then enter the uh, human trials. You know, earlier in the program, we did have uh, Mayor Caldwell talk about how the city's trying to help to get more widespread testing. And they're Mm -hmm. looking at 
trying to get tested from other places, you know, but I think then the idea is to try and figure out how many positives do we have and then, you know, focus in on, on containing uh, the spread. But I, I guess p part of me thinks that, gosh, I really hope then we hurry up and get to this herd immunity, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, we should be. I, I want to make that distinction that there is testing to see if you have a coronavirus, and then the antibody testing would be the test uh, for folks who may um, may have had the virus but did not show symptoms and um, didn't even know possibly that they had the virus. Maybe they thought it was, uh, you know, the flu. The antibody test would give us the idea of whether or not we've had, I think there was a study coming out of Stanford Medical earlier this week saying that uh, they started to, to do those tests in their community and noticed that there may have been folks that have had uh, coronavirus as far back as November of last year. So figuring that out, to, uh, in, I guess with both tests, would, would be optimal. And so are the researchers that you talk to, are they in contact with all the other teams that are, you know, working fast and furious It on is this? a tight-knit community. Uh, uh, from speaking to uh, Professor Lair, he had said that um, they had uh, conversations early on about, you know, they need to understand the testing aspect of it, and they need what epidemiologists are, are researching in terms of herd immunity in order to deploy that vaccine. So nobody is working in a silo right now, and everyone's racing. They know they don't have time, but they also know it will take time. So it's uh, interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HBR's Kuvehi Reishi giving us a snapshot of the efforts uh, happening locally to find a global remedy for this coronavirus crisis. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org. I'm Marco Werman. Preparation, as you know, is job one when you're anticipating a crisis. Same goes for our newsroom at The World. Our reporters and producers are following events in every time zone. Their contacts include doctors, epidemiologists, and public policy experts. They deal in the facts that can help us live through a pandemic. Be prepared. Be informed. Listen to the world. Starting this afternoon at 1. The ongoing COVID-19 health crisis has complicated a number of existing social issues here in Hawaii. While stay-at-home orders have offered a sense of safety for some, victims involved in sex trafficking have felt just as exposed to danger as ever before. Higher rates of children online has given away to an increased rate of attempted online trafficking. And just this week, the Hawaii State Commission on the Status of Women reported a number of cases where sexual favors uh, were asked for in exchange for of rent forgiveness. As we look toward how to safeguard at-risk demographics in the state, advocacy groups are reminding the public that resources are out there. The Conversations producer Harrison Patino spoke with Jessica Munoz about what kind of help is out there during this crisis. Munoz is the president of the outreach group Ho'ola Ho Napua, which means new life for children. So right now everyone is supposed to be quarantined at home. And one of the challenges that we see is more people are online and more predators are online, more children are online, you know, playing games or, you know, using social media. And so it provides ample opportunity for predators, traffickers to have access to youth and to young adults who at this time, especially with how much uncertainty and fear is being generated, that they could almost act as a sense of stability or as someone who wants to befriend them, especially in this, this situation of a lot of isolation and uh, youth not having many people to turn to. Those with poverty, stress, you know, that victimization, you'll see abuse increase in times like this. 
Yeah, it seems crazy to even think that with everything going on that people would still have to contend with this, but it's important to note that even during a global crisis like this, these issues still remain. Yeah, I mean, it is so amazing to me. I've actually been talking to several of our partner agencies and collaborative agencies that are across the country around what they're seeing. And we're not seeing sex trafficking shutting down because of COVID-19. We're seeing older girls being pushed out of the pimp stables because they can't earn as much money. We're seeing girls and women who've gotten out of the life go back into the life because of the economic stress and emotional stress. A lot of them are returning to the violent situations that they were in. Um, A lot of the exploitation, again, has been moved online. There was uh, some service providers we got on a call, and they were sharing that the demand while sex buying uh, might be down on the street. A lot of these traffickers are urging women to serve as working on on on-demand gig jobs like Uber, Instacart, and giving their earnings, of course, back to the trafficker. They're not giving them, you know, a day off or encouraging any social distancing practices. Um, And actually, the increased demand for illegal pornography and webcamming services have increased during this quarantine period. And the National Center for Sexual Exploitation actually um, stated that the largest free pornography website offered free premium services to help those quarantined in Italy. I'm not surprised, to be honest, because, I mean, in these times of stress and individuals having their lives turned upside down, I think that where there's a will, there's a way. And I think that just because you might not physically be in the same room as someone, that that desire, uh, especially around pornography, which we know is the segue into trafficking and exploitation, definitely increases. In a similar vein, we see with domestic abuse, these cases can get exacerbated when people are stuck in self-quarantine or the idea that these social issues can grow worse during these isolating incidents. Is it safe to say the same for something like sex trafficking? Yes, absolutely. For trafficking, for exploitation, uh, for child pornography, for child sex abuse, for child abuse in general, that isolation, especially when domestic violence victims, same thing, that their abuse can increase, especially around situations like this. We had uh, one of the partner organizations we work with in L.A. County. They're called Saving Innocence, and they said that the hotline um, in L.A. County for their child welfare has been ringing nonstop in the last two weeks with situations of sexual exploitation, trafficking, and child abuse. They've had seven crisis calls in the last 13 days even though, I mean, L.A.'s been shut down even longer than us. So how are services and resources for trafficked individuals here affected at this time? So given the recent quarantine, I think there's fear about in-person connections, obviously, given this virus. But that's the worst thing for this population of vulnerable individuals and youth. Um, because that isolation, you lose connection and relationship. And so I think that that's very concerning because um, it puts into jeopardy these at-risk individuals going back to situations of trafficking. Um, And also when the services are slim or you don't have access to them, out of sheer need to survive, provide for your family, because you have to realize some of these individuals and these kids even have kids. And so if they're not able to, you know, with all the layoffs recently, they can look at going back into what we call the life out of sheer need to survive. And so I think also, as we look at just the landscape and nonprofits, the financial resources, of course, are in jeopardy, especially for those of us who don't operate under large federal grants or state grants. And those who are sheltering victims, whether it's domestic violence, traffic use, trafficked individuals, I mean, their staffing challenges, ensuring the health and safety of their clients, I mean, is a huge piece. And then not knowing who might, with new admissions or new people coming into shelters and placement, it's challenging because you don't know if they have the virus or not. Yeah, how are shelter services being impacted when social distancing practices are being highly encouraged? Exactly. So um, from those who have talked to who are in sheltering, doing sheltering, especially domestic violence and other of those types of youth shelters, I mean, they're obviously doing some screening initially to see if there's any signs, but they're trying to do the six feet between people and those kinds of things. But just like in your house, it's very challenging to do that as well. So there's challenges across the board. So the immediate primary concern across the country and indeed across the world is dealing with the coronavirus. And when a global crisis like this arises, are outreach efforts for vulnerable populations overlooked or forgotten? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was having a conversation yesterday with another provider. And, you know, I think often the mental health 
is forgotten. And with these unique and vulnerable populations, they suffer from connection loss and isolation, and that victimization doesn't stop. And so there's the physical side, and, you know, I'm a nurse practitioner in the ER. I'm actively working, fighting COVID on the front lines. But we tend to look so much at the physical side, and we forget how that mental health affects not only those who are vulnerable, but those who are not vulnerable. You know, we're not hearing the conversation about how is this impacting our youth in our juvenile justice and child welfare system, who that's where a lot of these our youth that we work with on a daily basis are found within those systems of care. And given these recent restrictions, uh, meeting all of their needs can be really challenging in this environment of a physical disease. In a time like this, what can you say to people who want to help? There's plenty of opportunities to volunteer. Um, I know for our organization of Ho'olanapua, you know, as people are at home or have more time or those who might have lost their jobs, um, we have tons of opportunities to volunteer and things that can be done from home, from researching grants to, you know, being a part of um, some of the virtual stuff that we're doing to meet the needs of our kids, donating goods and items uh, for shelters and for outreach programs that are still out there doing the work. I think having the ability to make, you know, help with capacity and financial donations to all nonprofits that are doing work is really important because right now vulnerable populations are more at risk than ever. And we're working diligently to adapt our services to this new landscape that we're having to live in. That was our producer, Harrison Patino, talking to Ho'ola Napua President Jessica Munoz about the effect of the COVID-19 health crisis on sex trafficking. And that wraps it up for today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa takes you into the weekend for an Aloha Friday show devoted to culture and the arts. And, you know, we'd love to hear about the acts of kindness that you've seen during this stressful time. Share those stories. Call our Talkback line at 792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.